News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk a little bit about color and more specifically how humans conceptualize color. We've all seen the internet challenges. Some people see a blue dress. Some people see a white dress. Well, there is more information on that. Plus, looking at a rare disease, a rare condition where people can't actually see or differentiate between colors. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Jennifer Steves, Research Chair in Non-Invasive Visual Brain Stimulation at York University. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Interesting looking at the way that we conceptualize colors and uh, how that all happens. How did you get involved or start working in this field? Um, Well, I've done a few studies in this field and um, one of the studies that I did related to an individual who had had selective brain damage to a region of the brain where they weren't able to recognize objects. And this is called visual form agnosia. And we did a study to see whether or not color information might actually facilitate their ability to recognize objects and to recognize uh, the visual world and scenes and how natural scenes such as a forest have a lot of green information. And we asked whether that might help them in their recognition of the world. And in fact, it did. Hmm. And agnosia, when you you talk about color agnosia, what exactly does that mean? So color agnosia is when you're unable to recognize colors and um, name colors. It's like you've lost um, information about your understanding of colors. And so individuals with color agnosia have um, lost their ability to see color because of something that's going on within the brain. And so we uh, process color information through different levels of our visual system. And so you might think uh, that all of our perception of the world and the perception of color is done in the eye. And some of it is, but not all of it. Our understanding of the world really happens once that information from the eye gets sent to the brain. And so within the eye, we have... um, some sensors called cones, and they code different wavelengths of light, uh, blue, red, and green. And that information gets sent to the brain, and regions within the brain then code that color information and share it with our memory systems and other systems within the brain so that we can recognize the visual world and have memory about the world around us and how it relates to color. I find that fascinating in that it must be one thing if somebody kind of loses that ability to see color in that you would have a reference point and you would know what color was because you've seen it before. But what if somebody is born that way and doesn't ever see color in that it wouldn't that be challenging to try and explain to that person what color is? Absolutely. And so some of these um, disorders uh, that have origins within the brain Individuals may be born with it, and we called, we might call these a developmental color agnosia because they've always had it. And that would be unlike someone who might have had a traumatic brain injury where they've acquired uh, color agnosia later on in life and they've understood what color was before. So an individual who never had color perception might not even be aware that they don't perceive color. 
Um, and there are other ways that they might navigate the world. And, and often they just do this naturally. They come up with adaptations and compensations. So you can imagine that if the world would have sort of be uh, sort of grayscale, sort of black and white, that you might still be able to dis- distinguish between different shades of gray. So you're not seeing the color, but you can at least see what's lighter and what's darker. So that might be one way that individuals might compensate. And, and I th- think that that's kind of that came up in the study that you looked at or, or that you referenced in that case of a, a fellow or a gentleman who had color agnosia. Uh, he found ways, didn't he, to kind of differentiate between the colors, even though he couldn't actually imagine the colors or, or see them right in front of him? Absolutely. People, you know, who have any kind of deficit like that um, will use whatever they can to try and navigate the world and, uh, you know, maybe even rely on, on others to help them with, uh, you know, distinguishing where, where color might be an important uh, feature in the world. So do we know then when somebody, when we see color and maybe we all agree that the sky is blue, we agree maybe if we're looking at an apple that that apple is red, but do we know for sure that we're actually seeing it as individuals, we are seeing the same color? Uh, That's a great question. So there are individual differences in the perception of color. Some individual, I mean, you can even think about when, you know, shades of pink, you know, and someone else might, you know, say it's a little bit more on the red side, or maybe it's got a little blue in it. Um, So certainly individuals might have some differences in the way that they perceive colors. But um, typically, you know, there's some standard, you know, broad categories, but subtle differences can exist for sure. Hmm. And is the research still changing on it or do we, do we, because it seems to be one of those things that so many people see color. We don't really even talk about it or think about it in our daily lives because for for many of us, it's, it's a given, but is it something that we are still studying and learning things about? Absolutely. Um, And particularly because, you know, it's um, encoded neurally um, within the brain from the eye to the brain. And as we learn more and more about how to uh, study the brain and uh, with advances in neuroimaging, like magnetic resonance imaging and functional imaging of the brain, we can learn more about the networks of where this is being coded and how it's being coded in the brain. And do you see a difference then with different colors and that are, are some colors easier for people to recognize or associate with and others different or we have different reactions to them? Um, we're more sensitive to sort of uh, mid wavelengths than some other wavelengths. Um, but um, it's, there's also another type of color blindness that is uh, from a defect at the level of the retina in the back of the eye, with where the cone um, isn't coding uh, uh, red and green properly. And so um, this one is actually linked to X chromosomes, which is why uh, men are more likely to have that form of red-green color blindness. Well, it is really interesting research. Uh, Dr. Steves, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, do you ever find yourself getting angry when you're using social media? Maybe it's not just you, and maybe social media is designed to keep you engaged. 
Is it making you also enraged? Let's check back in with Mornings with Simi contributor Scott Chance. Good morning again. Hi, Jill. You're a Twitter user, right? Uh, yeah, reluctantly. Okay, yeah. I think yes. that's a lot of people's sort of stance today. Do you find that using it or using social media in general makes you emotional? Um, yes and no. I, I really don't engage that much in that if I tweet something or retweet it, I just leave it. I don't go yeah. back. I don't read comments. I don't engage with people. I just kind of share things on it and send stuff out there, but I'm not I'm not really the user they're going after here. Sure, yeah. I think you are uh, what people aspire to use it <laughs> like that way. You know, we it's a great tool, but we also recognize that there's some dangers with it. But this is crazy. A new study from computer scientists at UC Berkeley, they found that Elon Musk has changed the algorithm there. This is since he's taken over Twitter. And tweets being shown to people on their news feeds now particularly emphasize what they call emotional content. It amplifies tweets expressing anger and readers have increased emotional responses after reading reading tweets from the new algorithm, mm. particularly they experience more anger. This is what the, the study concluded. So I talked to Ethan Behrman. He's a lawyer at Behrman Law Firm in California. He's also a professor, a public speaker, a former alt- IT consultant, CTO, tech and media expert. He has been all over this stuff for a long time. And I asked him for his take and if he's noticed anything different in his Twitter feed. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Social media has always amplified anger and animosity because social media companies need you to click and stay engaged. That's first and foremost why there's been a lot of talk. Look, there are great things about social media. Like we've connected. That's a great thing about social media. I've connected with wonderful people around the world. Those are the good parts of social media. The bad parts is they derive their income from ads being viewed, being clicked. It's mostly ads being viewed. How do I get people to see more ads? I need to keep them engaged. What engages people? Vitriol, fake news, um, controversial conspiracy topics. And Elon Musk has amped that up. We have the data that, for example, anti-Semitism is up. I think the number was 73% on Twitter since Elon Musk has started changing the algorithms. Racism in general on Twitter is up, according to researchers. So, yes, there is evidence to show that Elon Musk's adaptations of the Twitter algorithm and removal of people like moderators um, has had a negative impact on the user experience for those who want to have a great discourse like you and I are having right now. So for people who might not be familiar, explain how an algorithm, if you can, purposefully feeds you certain things and not other things. Well, it's really interesting. What it does is they have a program that measures, it's it's a piece of code that says, if this is happening, then let's do that. That's the most basic form of an algorithm. It's an if-then statement. Um, And on Twitter, they give higher number of points essentially to things that have replies. Um, So the number of times it's retweeted is not anywhere near as powerful as the number of times it's replied to. So if I post something highly controversial that people on the left or the right, it doesn't matter. They both do it. And they're going to scream and say, you're wrong. And they're going to reply and call you names and say how wrong you are. That amplifies through this 
calculation that the computer servers are doing, and it pushes those up in your feed. Okay, so Elon Musk owns Twitter. There's been a lot about that. And one of the things that uh, has been spoken about is his desire to make Twitter the town center square for discourse. Like Exactly like you say, like you and I are having right now. He has at least said that his goal is free speech. Um, and this is basically he wants it to be this unregulated where anyone can come and post um, what is your take on that? Is is it that? Do you think it could become that? Uh, ever since the internet allowed anonymity in posting, it removed the ability to ever have true free speech. Anonymity allows people to slander, to defame, to post falsehoods, to lie, to gin up hatred against other groups. And we just saw a thing, uh, I think it was today on Twitter, um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has the gray check mark, somebody bought a blue check mark and is posting as her. And even worse, Elon Musk amplified it. A lying fake account, which he said he was going to make sure was never going to happen. What would you say to people, uh, j maybe just the average user who just is like they have Twitter, they sc it's like kind of they consider it their news feed, they scroll it, they check what's going on, who won the hockey game, whatever. Uh, how can you maybe not protect yourself, but just be aware. Always check for reliable news sources. And, and there are legitimate news sources where you should be getting your news. That doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean they're always right. But if they follow journalistic standards, they will admit when they're wrong and announce it. Really appreciate the time, Ethan. It's Ethan Behrman. He's an attorney from California. Uh, we've spoken before. And man, you expert technology, politics, media, you've done it all. And I'm really glad to have the opportunity to speak with you again. And uh, again, thanks so much, Ethan. Really appreciate it, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So some scary stuff there, you know, if you're a social media user. But I, I like I'm glad that we're becoming aware of it, at least. Oh, for sure. And I think we forget, too, that not everybody is on Twitter. In fact, it's a small percentage of people. Like you said, people will go there and get sports scores and things, but you really shouldn't be going there. If anyone's using that as their only news source or their only source of information, that could be a bit of an issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. I, I wonder, too, uh, because I did notice it, even in the little bit that I do, I, one day, uh, Ben Dooley, who produces my show when I'm at my normal time, 12 to 3, I was saying something about why am I getting all of these things coming at me? He's right. like, you're in the wrong. You go, stop, stop being in the for you uh, ca category, go to the following and it'll be much better. And just that little shift, I thought, oh, well, this is much better. This isn't, uh, I was getting a lot of things exactly to what uh, your guest said there, things that were targeted and clearly they were targeted because they wanted to anger or get you get you all riled up and don't fall for the bait. Exactly. Just helpful to know that it's there, right? Exactly. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a, a big, are you on Twitter all the time? I use it. Yeah. I read a lot on Twitter. I like use it to find links. I do like, you know, check stuff out on it and stuff, but definitely not my only source. No. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. What a, a very interesting take that he had on that. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. That is Mornings with Simi contributor, Scott Chance. Let me know your thoughts on this as well. 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. You can text that line as well. Let me know and uh, we will see what others are saying about social media. Does it engage and enrage? This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, new research is taking a look at opioids and if there is a way opioids could deliver effective pain relief without the risk of addiction. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is John Stryker, Associate Professor of Neuroscience and Pharmacology at the University of Arizona. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Joe. Good morning. Well, this sounds like it's extremely important research, given the fact here in BC we have an ongoing overdose crisis linked to illicit drugs. What specifically is being looked at here? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the basic meta- metaphor to understand what we're looking at is, so you have all these neurons in your brain that are acting like a communication network. And through that network, everything happens, right? Everything from thinking to sleeping to falling in love to writing a poem. And within each neuron, there is a similar communication network that allows drugs like opioids or like other drugs too, for that matter, to carry out their effects in your neurons and to make, actually make things happen. So an opioids bind, opioid drugs bind to your neurons, they make stuff happen, they do so through this network that, that's called signaling or signal transduction. And so my work is, is really focused on understanding how that works, how that system works, because some of the signals are good that give you things that you want, like pain relief. And some of the signals are really bad, as you alluded to, that give you things that you don't want, like overdose and, and addiction and all the rest of the, the nasty stuff that comes with opioids. And so my work, our work, is really focused on separating what are the good signals, what are the bad signals, and designing opioids that are going to stimulate your brain in the right way to give you the things that we want without all the crap that we don't want. Right. So is it oversimplifying it, though, to say the reason that we like opioids and we want more of them is they do stop the pain? So is it finding a way that they can do that? But but it seems it seems like there's that connection. How do you how do you separate those two? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not simplistic at all. That's 100 percent. So like everyone's trying to find the, the perfect alternative to opioids. And so far, we haven't found anything because they're really good at what they do in terms of relieving pain. It's just they have that, that baggage that we're trying to get rid of that comes along with it. And so, yeah, our strategy is to, to figure out a way to stimulate your brain in the right way to give you just the pain relief uh, through the opioid system in your brain without giving you uh, the addiction and all the other nasty stuff. And is it a question of do we, we know, obviously you just explained it, so we know how they're working. So is it then figuring out how our brains are responding to other substances or how to, to maybe change the way the brain responds to do exactly what you just said to kind of stop that addiction from, right. from setting in? Well, some people are still are, are working kind of along those lines, right? Like finding other other systems, other types of drugs, and so on. I'm still focused on the opioid system because you mentioned we know how it works. We kind of know how it works, but there's a lot that we don't. Like, there's a lot of, of mysteries, even after all these years, decades, you know, more than a century of opioid research, all, all these areas that we don't know and don't understand. And that's what my research is trying to figure out, these molecular signals that we don't understand, to figure out which molecular signals are contributing to the good stuff and what's to the bad stuff. And then in terms of what that would actually look like for a patient, what we're trying to do would be to create a new opioid. So you wouldn't be taking morphine or fentanyl or something like that. You'd be taking something new that we've made that chemically tweaks your brain in the right way to give you the good signals, but not the bad ones, but still, but still would be an opioid. Hmm. And not everyone becomes addicted when they take opioids. So do we know why mm-hmm. the brains react differently and that some people can take them for pain and once the, they're, they're healed of, of what uh, they were, had opioids for, they're fine, whereas others can't? 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's. I don't fully understand it myself, and there's. Uh, I, I think we don't fully understand it. There are a lot of individual susceptibility differences. Um, I know people that focus more on that field know a bit more than I do, but uh, overall, I, I think it's still somewhat of a mystery. Although it's clear that, for instance, if you have a close family member that um, has, you know, is is uh, is addicted to alcohol or drugs of some kind, that you're more at risk just due to family, you know, shared family risk factors. So there's probably some genetic component to it, uh, but there's a lot of other stuff too, you know, uh, your environment and, and a lot of these other factors that play in. And uh, you've touched on this as well, and I know your research is uh, focusing on something called the, the heat shock protein 90, and not to go too far mm-hmm. into the technical part <laughs> of it, but how important is that as far as that maybe unlocking those things that you mentioned? Well, it's, I think it's pretty important, of course. Um, maybe not everyone would agree, but it, it's kind of one one signal that I mentioned in that network and one strategy, right? So there's a, the way I think of it, it's like many many potential paths to the top of the mountain of coming up with an improved opioid. So some people are going over here working on their thing. I'm over here working on heat shock protein 90 because I think it's pretty cool. And we actually have found that it's pretty important. And specifically what we figured out is that if you if you inhibit this protein in the right way, if you block it, uh, you actually make your pain relief better while decreasing the side effects. And we know that that's happening in the spinal cord. And now we're you know, really digging in and figuring out, first of all, the details about how that works. And then we're also designing new drugs that you might take with your opioid to make, uh, make the experience better, to make the pain relief better while reducing the side effects. And can this, do you think, then be used for other things as well, cancer or other, other illnesses that, that maybe we're not getting the best results? Yeah, it's actually funny you mentioned cancer specifically. HSP-90, heat shock protein 90, is, is a big target in the cancer field, and people have been looking at it there for a long time. And there are active clinical trials looking at heat shock protein 90 inhibitors and so on. I'm kind of the newcomer to that air, uh, to the HSP-90 area, bringing it into the brain, bringing it into pain. Um, so, yeah, definitely there's other things that it's going to be important for too. Inflammation, there's, there's several things. Well, it's uh, so interesting uh, and uh, to see where this is going from here. Uh, John Stryker, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. This is Mornings with Simi. Joel Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, there is a new interim CEO in charge of Atira. That is the agency that has been under the microscope lately. And as you know, the former CEO, Janice Abbott, resigned after a scathing report was released by Ernst & Young. Well, joining me now is Catherine Room the interim CEO of the Atira Women's Resource Society. Catherine Room, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, good morning, Jill. It's great to be here. Uh, I know you. Uh, this was announced and you talked a bit about this and kind of where you're coming from into this position. Um, we know you're, you don't have the background in this type of work, not in social services, rather uh, right. you were, were the head of Technical Safety BC, also the, the founder and CEO of a health tech startup. How will you use those skills and your background to take on this role? Well, that's right. I don't come from the social services background. And I think what the board want right now is someone to get the financial house in order and to really help elevate our operational excellence. Those are the two tasks that are on deck. And uh, and I think I'm a good fit for that, given my background. And uh, I know you're new that this is this appointment has just happened. But when you talk about getting the financial house in order, have you had a chance to look at the financial house or see how big of a job that's going to be? 
Uh, I haven't actually, Jill. I start on July the 1st, and uh, and while we are in the next couple of weeks uh, sort of um, bringing me up to speed, I intend to hit the ground running in July. Um, but what we do know is that we've had um, both the ENY report on BC Housing as well, um, Atira has a BC Housing operational review that is about to get underway. We're looking forward to seeing the scope of that. Um, and the board of Atira is doing its own independent governance review to look at the way that decisions are made on real estate and as well to look at conflict of interest. So there will be findings, but there's a lot of work that is going on that will be something that I will look forward to to going after and you know, really bringing Atira, such an important organization, to best in class. And uh, I know the contract that you have signed, it's a, a four-month contract, uh, could be extended. The, even just the list that you just put uh, there as far as things that need to be addressed. Uh, do you think it's possible to do that in four months? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> I think it's, it's going to be a lot of uh, folks rolling up their sleeves and the board are committed to doing the same for me or uh, with me. They, um, they're very much on deck doing the hard, complex work that's required here because ATIRA provides 2,600 homes to the most vulnerable people, women, children, gender diverse people in the middle of a housing crisis. This is an organization that is just too important to to society. And, and I know the public want to see it uh, succeed. So yeah, we, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, four months is a short time, but I'm very confident that I'll be able to hand this off to uh, a new CEO in the social services sector who will just take it forward under their own strategy and vision and, um, and really keep the momentum going. There have been a lot of calls as well for more transparency. And I think in light of the Ernst & Young report where it came to light that BC Housing which or Atira, which gets much of its money from BC Housing, there were issues with conflict of interest. There were issues with, with a lack of transparency. How do you change that? Absolutely, there were issues. We, we must rebuild trust. Um, this is a reset and renewal that we know trust was broken and the actions that the board have taken that I'm committed to undertaking is entirely intended to rebuild this trust. And and that's with our partners. That includes with the government and with BC Housing and the municipalities, our lenders, the public. Um, and there are lots of parties that are stepping up and stepping forward. And um, I think that's really important is that we come together to support this amazing organization. And when we look at employees, the staff members working with Atira, many of whom have just unionized, but before mm-hmm. that even, we were hearing from some of the workers raising some pretty significant concerns about how they were treated, working overtime due to understaffing, a lot of safety issues that weren't being addressed unless they made claims to WorkSafe BC. How do you begin to tackle a workforce that clearly has had a lot of issues in the past years and really feel in many cases that they have not been listened to? This is an amazing workforce. And you're right, issues have been brought forward. And um, I I think that what we want to do is actually improve any way that workers can bring forward, our employees can bring forward issues. Uh, The board is committed to having a whistleblower line. So uh, there will be multiple avenues, including with the GEU bargaining unit, which I welcome. I think that's a great next step. 
part of ATIRA was already under uh, GEU bargaining. So um, all of these are very positive steps. And with our employees, that is also part of rebuilding trust, is giving them voice. Uh, They are the lifeblood of this important organization. And when you say giving them voice, then do you have ideas or things that will change to, to allow that to happen? Well, I, I personally think that culture is the single most important thing that any organization or any business has. It's, it is the magic that allows you to deliver on the toughest mandate. Atira arguably has the toughest mandate. And, um, and so culture requires uh, a sense of combined purpose that people are able to give voice to their concerns, but also that they, their innovations and their ideas are brought forward. So it's, it's a community where everyone is considered part of the broader solution. Uh, our employees are amazing, and many of them are also our tenants. So I think, again, that's part of the culture of Atira is that beautiful crossover between those groups. And will you be taking direction then from from the board, from the employees? Because again, like you said, your background's not in social services. It's in in more the, the finance, the technical side. So how do you kind of marry those two together? Yes, for sure. So that, you know, social services, I'm going to get my expertise from the experts within the organization. And, and they are. They, they do the work. They have been continuing to do the work through all of these issues. Um, so they, they're very strong. And, and also, I'm going to be looking to our partners to support me. And those include the municipalities, those include other social service agencies, uh, the government and BC Housing. So working together, I, I feel I will be well supported. And I know the board is looking forward to that as well. Uh, is this something that, and I know you haven't officially started the position yet, but is it something that you would consider doing in a permanent sense? Or are you there simply, not simply, but are you there for the transition and for however long that takes? I wish it was going to be simple. <laughs> um, I, I definitely am going to hand it off. And I think that um, really to, um, to bring what are my skills, but to realize also that this is for somebody who will step in with their longer-term vision for ATIRA, I will always support this organization. I think that it is for the business community, both private and public sector, to step up now. This is the time where we need to show our support and uh, I'm very privileged to have been asked to do this, but I know that this is for very two specific reasons. Um, I will help get the financial house in order, and I will bring the organization forward in its operational excellence. The board itself will be conducting its independent review for its governance excellence. So those three things working together, we will be in a great position for the future leadership. And Catherine, in the past, uh, the past CEO, uh, when we talk about transparency, because Atira gets the bulk of its money from BC Housing, which is taxpayer dollars, uh, Janice Abbott Mm -hmm. in the past was very reluctant to talk about her salary when asked, even though you can go to the Canadian, uh, the revenue agency and see that it was north of $200,000. Are you able or are you willing to tell the public what your salary is? We will be transparent about my salary and about the financials for Atira. I actually, my contract will be signed in the next couple of weeks. Um, th- this is part of rebuilding trust. To your point, these are taxpayer dollars, and and I think the public should know where their investment is going. 
because we all want to support women and children and gender diverse peoples in having low barrier or no barrier housing when we're all facing housing crisis. So how do we protect those most vulnerable people and where are the dollars going? So I think that transparency, Jill, is essential. Right. But don't you know what your salary is already? Um, we're, we're still discussing it. I think what I will be aligned to is what the former CEO's compensation was, but on a contract basis. All right. Catherine Room, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Jill, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Every child of a deaf in this province has to be reported to my office, and we will be investigating, and we certainly will speak to the parents, we will speak to the attending physician, we will gather the medical records, um, and we will try to establish the cause of death. That was Chief Coroner Lisa Lapointe speaking yesterday on the Mike Smith show. And uh, the conversation was a bigger conversation about more concerns being raised about Surrey Memorial Hospital. This is another open letter that is addressed to the citizens in Surrey talking about uh, specific issues when it comes to women's health providers at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Claudine Stornes, Bliss, obstetrician and gynecologist at Surrey Memorial. Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Thank you for having me. The letter outlines some pretty horrific descriptions of what has been happening in Surrey Memorial Hospital. Before we get into some more of the specific examples that are in this letter, and I know you can't talk a lot about that case, but with the coroner saying that, yes, they are investigating, I know this happened, I believe it was 2021. Can you tell us anything more about that? Because I think people were very shocked to hear that an infant had died and doctors are saying, saying that it was linked to a lack of resources. Yeah, as you said, there is very little I am able to talk about um, for privacy reasons. But I can tell you that one of the factors, if not the major factor, was the lack of supervised beds at the time. And is this something, Lisa Lapointe said there, that that they are investigating, but do you know, was it investigated at the time, or is this something that has been brought to the coroner's office or as part of this letter that's kind of reopened that? Um, It sounds to me like it's reopened it because it was absolutely investigated. That is not something that would go not investigated. Um, And there were, you know, policies and changes made to try and prevent that from happening in the future. However, those changes fall short, way far uh, from what is required. And can you talk a bit more about that? The letter talks a lot about the lack of resources. It talks about the shortage of beds, shortage of nursing staff and other staff members. Can can you kind of expand on that and uh, talk about how how much of an impact that's having and, and what are those shortages? What do those look like? So the unit was the family birthing unit, which is a labor and delivery unit in Sir Memorial, was renovated 10 years ago to accommodate 4,000 deliveries per year. Now the women of Surrey give birth to approximately 6,000 babies per year. So there's been an increase in 50%. The increase in beds in that amount of time has been four, which is just under 4%. That's obvious to anybody that that is a big, big gap. 
in addition to that, it, like, globally, there's been a shortage of nurses, nurses, and that affects our unit as well. So it's compounded. Even if there is a bed, sometimes it is left empty because we there's no nurse to care for the patient that would be admitted to that bed. So it leads to to things like patients laboring in a triage area, which is not the standard of care. Standard of care would be one-to-one nursing, which means each patient gets their own nurse. Uh, when in labor. It also means that patients are admitted later and later in labor. We've all seen in the news in the last couple of years these women delivering in the hallways and triage in, uh, in, in the parking lot, in their cars on the way, because they, they were not admitted at a time that we as physicians would have deemed appropriate. Uh, some of these will happen, right? I mean, we've all heard of this woman that goes into labor and gives birth 20 minutes later. That, that's not avoidable. But it is sometimes avoidable. It also means that when the unit is so uh, busy, women who have low-risk pregnancies and come in in labor are diverted to other centers, within, usually within prison health. And the, the message I want to send is this. I live in Surrey, too. This is our city. It's our community. We deserve excellent care in our community. We deserve to deliver our babies in our community. And it, I would highly encourage everybody to speak up, write to you, MLAs, and, and get your voice heard. It's very important. How long has it been like this at Surrey Memorial? Um, in our letter, we focus on the last five years because that's when it became critical. Um, but really, we've been asking for more for 10 years. And it, we have had conversations. There has been programs implemented, but they all represent shuffling of resources as opposed to adding resources. There, Like I said, there's, sure, there's been additions in four beds, but it's a drop in the ocean. The letter goes on. It talks about the gynecology service. Average wait times are 77% longer than the benchmark. It says that that means that that people at times are requiring multiple blood transfusions while awaiting surgery, um, that they're having side effects, they're having a lot of negative side effects. When you've raised these concerns with Fraser Health or with the health ministry, what kind of a response do you get? I, I, I get the usual political response, right? Oh, we're trying, we know it's hard. Or we'll look into it. And there hasn't really been any movement on that. End. Um, <clears throat> I understand why, because operate, access to the operating room is a problem across all specialties. We are the most affected specialty in Surrey Memorial. But everybody, nobody's meeting their benchmark times. The average deviation is a little above 20%. Our average deviation is above 70%. However, not every gynecologist in our department has a big gynecology practice. So some of those wait times for some of our members is upwards of 170% above benchmark. Hmm. So, you know, that's a long time for women to, to, to wait to have surgeries. And like I said, some of them... In my practice, we'll require blood transfusion. Uh, I deal with a lot of pelvic pain conditions, which obviously means women are suffering. Medications that are involved are not without side effects and are costly. Most of them are not covered. And 
so it, you know it leads to this slow decline in health status for our patients and that it's not acceptable have you had a response to this particular letter? And now that this letter is out there, uh, I know you've been talking about it. Has there been any response from officials uh, to the specifics that you've raised once again? Yes, we've been invited to discuss with um, Victoria Lee and Adrian Dix. And do you know when that discussion? It will be today. All right. Well, we will uh, definitely follow up with you because, again, uh, just uh, shocking uh, revelations in this letter and concerns being raised. Uh, Dr. Stornes Bliss, thank you so much for taking the time today. No problem. Thank you for having me and thank you for covering the story.